You're listening, listening to, to, Bible. to Bible Plus. Bible Plus from Seesaw. Bible Plus is a podcast featuring short, daily discussions of every chapter in the New Testament. Bible Plus is designed to increase Bible reading, understanding, and enjoyment. Get more out of the Bible. Today we're in Matthew chapter 2. Again, Matthew is making a one singular point throughout his entire gospel, and that is Jesus is king. So Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. And um, in Matthew chapter 2, we come to a very unique story. Only Matthew tells us this story. And it's the only story that Matthew tells us about Jesus's childhood. Now, the gospel of Luke gives us a different story from Jesus's childhood to support, to, to support a point that Luke wants to make. But Matthew is showing us that even in infancy and childhood, as a young child, Jesus is proclaimed as king and his birth threatens all earthly kingdoms with their claims to power and their clamor for glory. Jesus is the true king. Uh, and if Jesus is Lord, no one else is. So Matthew chapter 2, we want to see how this particular story, this poignant story of crisis experienced by Jesus in birth and even experienced by King Herod, threatened by Jesus' birth, how does this story give us another window on Jesus being king. So three three points I want to make on this chapter is the way to the king, the worth of the king, and the word the king fulfills. The way to the king, the worth of the king, and the word the king fulfills. Okay, way, worth, and word. Let's look at them one at a time. <clears throat> First, we've got the way to the king. And this is the story of the Magi. And this is really a story of response, both the Magi and Herod and also the scribes in Jerusalem are responding to the news that the king of the Jews has been born. And only one group successfully makes their way to the king. And so we want to see how did they get there? How did they find the newborn king? And how does that apply to us today? So the two factors in there being guided to Jesus as king was this mysterious star and this uh, prophecy and scripture. So we've got the star and the scripture. Now, they follow the star and probably leave off following the star to go to Jerusalem thinking that the king of the Jews would be born in the capital of the Jews, where the temple uh, and pro long promised throne would be. But once they get there, they're kind of redirected and corrected in their understanding by the word of God and find Jesus in Bethlehem. So the two things that help us make our way to the king is a living heavenly vision and the <clears throat> written word of God. When we have these two things together, a heavenly vision of Christ and God's purpose and the kingdom, and when we match that kind of living heavenly vision that we've personally experienced with the sure and trustworthy word of scripture, then we're balanced in our um, we're balanced in our approach. We won't go off kind of in a subjective, personal tangent, thinking some vision we we have is unique to us, and we won't be like the scribes who had the scripture but didn't make the journey to see Jesus, which was just a few miles away. Who was just a few miles away in Bethlehem? So we don't want to go to either extreme of kind of just having only a vision that's not tethered to scripture. And we don't want to only have dead knowledge of Scripture with no living, seeking uh, heart. 
that actually leads us to, to Jesus. So once they get the <clears throat> scriptural knowledge of Jesus's birth in verse 6, um, prophesied to be born in Bethlehem, then verse 9, it says, the star reappears, and I love this, it says, it led them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So how do we get to Jesus? What's the way to the king? We need a heavenly vision that's tethered to the solid and unshakable word of God. When we match that scriptural truth with personal living light and vision, we find our way to the king. So, and this is in contrast to Herod, who asks, you know, kind of um, deceitfully to, to find his way to the king. Of course, he wants to destroy the king. And this is in contrast to the scribes, the religious rulers of the day, who, although they had the knowledge, they don't make their way to the king. And so we see this contrast in response. The great joy of the Magi, the great rage of Herod, and the great indifference of the scribes. We want to be those Magi today who have a vision matched to the word and make our way to the king. Okay, now the second point is the worth of the king. When we make our way to the king, what is that experience like? What do we experience in the presence of Jesus, even as an infant king? We have three things here, worship, offering, and transformation. So the first thing they do is in verse 11, they fall down on their face and worship this tiny baby as king. So there's worship. Worship is the only appropriate response in the presence of Jesus as king. And this begins a line of worship that extends through the book of Matthew. Um, you can trace this, uh, look for the words worship, but ultimately concludes with Matthew 28, 17. The last uh, mention of worship is they're standing on the mountain. Jesus is resurrected. He says, all authority has been given to me. It says they fall down and worship. So from beginning to end, Matthew is telling us, how do you respond to the king? You worship. But that's not all they do. They don't just have a kind of a, a word on their lip or a, a position uh, of prostration. They offer what they have to the king. And so <clears throat> when we truly take Jesus as our king, this touches our wallet. This touches how we spend our time and our money, the things most precious to us we offer to him. They offer gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And on another level, not only is this just saying that Jesus is more valuable and more worth, uh, of more worth than our most precious possessions, these gifts they offer to him are, you know, inspired by the Spirit and are symbolic of the true worth of the king. Gold points to his divine nature, frankincense to his resurrection, myrrh to his death. We don't have time to support that interpretive move, but um, it's there if you look for it. And what this is saying is the true worth of this king is in his divine nature and in his death and resurrection. So again, Matthew is showing us this high theology. Who this infant child is, is true man, true God, and the one who will go through death and resurrection to save his people from his sins, like chapter one said, to be with us in the most intimate relationship of life and love. Okay, the last point of the worth of the king is this experience of worship and offering all they have uh, in tribute to the king is a transformational experience. And we know that because it says they returned another way. Now, of course, just on the story level, um, they're instructed by an angel not to do that. But we know on our experiential level, when we come into contact with the king and have a 
worship experience where we offer ourselves to him that transforms us and changes the way we live. It changes the direction of our life. And that is because when we come into contact with the king, we come in contact with the king, the one who has all authority and redirects us uh, in our life. Okay, now the last point here is the word the king fulfills. So we've got the way to the king, the worth of the king. And then we find out in this chapter five times that this king is the fulfillment of so many diverse prophecies and hopes and expectations, some explicit, some unexpected. And Jesus in his life, in the most detailed experiences he has, is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Um, and, you know, um, you know, one of the big ones here is, is in verse 15, it says, this fulfilled the saying, out of Egypt I called my son. And so, all of these 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 places that Jesus goes, and you know he flees he flees Israel, goes to Egypt, he comes out of Egypt, he settles in Nazareth. Um, all of these small details of Jesus's life are actually royal fulfillments, kingly enactments that fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And on another level, this this whole story shows. Just how with us God is. Chapter one said God is with us. Chapter two, we see that God as a vulnerable infant fleeing for his life. Jesus as you know, refugee, as despised, uh, weak, lowborn, nobody. He's a twig from a stump. That's where that uh, allusion to Nazarene is coming from, Isaiah eleven one. So the God who is with us, He's with us in the the uh, most intense and vulnerable of human experiences. And the God who is with us is the human Nazarene, that despised, lowly, nobody, the twig from the stump. And it's only by entering into our human weaknesses and ultimately our death, the ultimate human weakness, that Jesus can become our Savior and lead us out in the new and greater exodus out of Egypt God calls us with his son. Now, the last point I want to make is the two titles for Jesus in this chapter, King of the Jews and the Nazarene, verse 2 and verse 23. Interestingly enough, at the end of Jesus's life, he's hanging on a cross, dying for our redemption, and placarded above his head are these two exact same titles. This is Jesus, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. So ultimately, even this chapter looks way ahead to how Jesus ultimately will save his people, lead us out into the greater exodus, and be ultimately with us by becoming one with us in his life, and that is by passing through death, going into resurrection, and we'll worship him as the king who has all authority. So hopefully hopefully you got a lot of help out of this chapter. This chapter is so epic, this story, but it's basically coming down to the way of the king, the way to the king, the worth of the king and the word the king fulfills.